this is uh, Dr. George Zilbergel on the, his uh, podcast um, called Citizens Gone Wild, Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Hype and Glory. But there'll be no hype and glory on this show today. We have, I feel very fortunate, that we have Jack uh, Cedarelli. We just went over pronouncing that. And uh, let me tell you a tiny bit about him. He's an American entrepreneur and a politician who served in the New Jersey General Assembly from 2011 to 2018. He's a member of the Republican Party, and he ran for the governor's office in New Jersey in 2017, but uh, lost in the primary to someone who in turn lost to the present governor, Phil Murphy. Uh, what I wanted to talk about, at least start out with, is the question of pensions. The question of pensions, whether you are aware of this or not, is a major, major uh, point across the entire nation. Basically, the states have promised more than they are, a lot of them are capable of delivering, and it's come down to decision plays. We've had uh, one state, Illinois, almost go bankrupt. Perhaps it is bankrupt, but no one's figured out a way to haul away a state. Um, entire cities, real cities like San Jose, have actually been bankrupted by pensions. And we don't want that to happen here. So I've invited Jack, who has shown, I think, a great deal of courage in um, staking out a position regarding pensions. Um, before you start, Jack, I wanted you to answer a couple of background questions like, what exactly did Governor Christie do with pensions? Um, he did something everyone knows. And um, the second thing is, do, uh, does it, what he did cover fire and police? And the, the third thing is, are the pensions themselves too big? So if, why don't you go ahead? You're the only one here who really knows much about pensions. Uh, the, the big thing, George, and by the way, thank you for having me on. And thank you for what it is that you do your podcast to bring some balance to the debate in the community. And, and the like. So um, what Governor Christie did was pension and health care reform, where you, you took longer to qualify for your full pension by increasing the retirement age. And the other thing you did was Chapter 78 on the health care side, which made employees of the state and teachers, in particular, they're in the state health and pension plan, uh, to have a skin in the game. So if you pick the more expensive plan in your plan options as an employee, of the public sector, you contributed more toward the cost of the more expensive plan. That was referred to as Chapter 78. Uh, it has now been, uh, it has now expired. There was a sunset on it. And, and the newest plan that the governor has signed on to pretty much eliminates Chapter 78, where people really don't have the same skin in the game if they pick the more expensive plans. So those were the two big things that uh, Governor Christie did in partnership with the legislature. Uh, it has now kind of come to an end. Let me uh, ask you this. Do you think that the pensions um, in New Jersey are too high? The pensions themselves, aside from the uh, medical, que medical insurance questions. So I've said all along, the reason why we have a pension deficit over the long term, the long term trust fund is insolvent. Uh, we've got about 10 to 15 years, depending on market rate returns, to fix it. And we'll get into the particulars of how I plan to fix it as governor. Um, but listen, the state hasn't made the contributions. 
Um, but at the same time, one of the reasons why the state hasn't made the contributions to the pension plan is because the state has been paying for the post-retirement health care benefit for 800,000 retirees. And that cost has exploded. The other reason why the pension is insolvent is because people are living into their 80s and 90s and because the pension benefit, in my opinion, is way too generous. We can no longer afford a defined benefit plan. We need defined contribution plans like 401ks. So those are the primary reasons why we have a long-term solvency problem with the pension trust. If your plan is put into effect, will it affect people who are already retired? So here's what my plan does, George. If you've got more than 10 years in the system, certainly if you're already collecting a pension, that will continue as is. If you're a current employee in the state or our teachers, um, and you've got more than 10 years in the system, your plan will continue as is. If you've got between zero and 10 years in the system, we're gonna switch you over to a cash balance plan, which is a hybrid defined benefit, defined contribution plan. If you're a new hire, you're going into a 401k and there will be a five-year moratorium on employer contributions. For all public retirees, if your pension plus your social security, don't forget taxpayers paid for one half of the social security benefit. If your pension plus your social security is more than $75,000, you will begin to pay for your own post-retirement healthcare benefit. And I will take every penny saved from those four measures and put it back into the pension trust to ensure it's long-term solvency. That's how we solve it. Anyone that's owned a business knows there's only two ways to reduce your benefits costs. And the two ways are fewer people on the payroll and change the benefit. Um, I think state government is bloated with 65,000 employees. I think it should be reduced by at least 10%. So there's a great deal of savings to be had there. And then all of the benefit reforms that I just spoke to make all the difference in pointing our pension trust towards solvency. Okay, that is very clear. Um, will this, will your plan affect the medical benefits of retirees? Well, it'll affect it in this sense. If your pension plus your social security is more than $75,000, I think you should begin to pay for your own post-retirement healthcare benefit. I mean, we all know that people have a baseline Medicare benefit and we know that people opt in to Medicare Part B to get the expanded or what they call gap insurance coverage. The state of New Jersey is paying for that gap insurance coverage for 800,000 retirees. I mean, my mother's four pensions add up to like $33,000 a year. And she has $99 a month deducted from her Social Security check to pay for Medicare Part B, the gap coverage. So there's no donut hole. Um, we're doing that. My mother's paying for it out of her own pocket. In the state of New Jersey, we're doing that for 800,000 retirees. And I just believe if your pension plus your social security is north of a certain amount, you can begin to contribute toward your own post-retirement healthcare benefit. And here's the trade-off. Some people aren't gonna like that. I think it's fair. Particularly when I say that every penny saved from that reform will be poured back into the pension trust to ensure that you continue to get your pension check for the rest of your life. Okay. All right. Have you uh, have said this out loud to many people? I say it everywhere I go, George. I mean, one thing that uh, I do is give people specifics. As you know, I've never been about generalities or platitudes. I think if you want to be governor, you should give people the specifics without getting them lost in the weeds, obviously. 
uh, but give them the specifics on how we're going to fix this state. And you've touched upon one of the three crises that paralyze us economically and fiscally. Our economy in New Jersey is never going to grow. We're never going to see people achieving their American dream here as long as we have this pension crisis and add to that the property tax crisis and the business climate crisis. Those three crises are the focus of my gubernatorial campaign and will be so for my administration. Well, the other two, in effect, sit on top of what you just talked about. I agree. You're saying that unless we do this, we're not going to change, for example, the business climate. Is that correct? Well, I'm saying three things. I just shared with you how it is I would fix the pension crisis. I'm happy to share with you and your listeners how it is we would fix the property tax crisis. And then we also have to fix the business climate crisis. Again, those three crises. We have the worst pension problem in the country, um, second only to Illinois. Um, we have the worst property taxes in the nation. And year over year, we're ranked the worst business climate in the nation. How can you ever expect our economy to do well? It's the reason why we are the last state in the union to recover from the Great Recession. And we're in a much poorer position to recover from the economic crisis brought about by the pandemic because of these three crises. Three crises, by the way, that Phil Murphy refused to address during his first two and a half years in office. Well, um, you know, I'd, I'd actually like to have him uh, react to what you're saying. I don't know if you would allow that. Or... Well, George, it's your show, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but uh, still. Anyway, um, these other problems, aren't they? When you say business environment, you're talking mainly about taxation, are you not? Well, I'm talking about the, our, our tax code with respect to businesses and individuals, because a great many individuals are self-employed in this state. Right. So when I talk about reforming, revolutionary reforms to change our business climate, why don't we have a discussion in New Jersey about adopting Delaware's bylaws for corporate governance? You've heard of, I'm sure, and most other people have, the Delaware Corporation, the Delaware Corporation, the Delaware Corporation. Uh, why don't we adopt Delaware's bylaws for corporate governance? Why don't we cut the corporate business tax in New Jersey from 10% to 5%, 1% a year over a five-year period? Um, why don't we go from eight to nine tax brackets down to three, 3%, 4%, and 5%? That would put us in a much more competitive position in the South with Pennsylvania and a much more competitive position with New York in the North. I don't think we should ever tax the gain on the sale of family-owned business. Um, pay your capital gains to the federal government if you sell your family-owned business, but why pay any capital gains tax or taxes at all on the gain of the sale of a family-owned business in New Jersey? I think the gain on the sale of an IPO stock if the company headquarters in New Jersey should be tax-free. These are just some of the things that I find very exciting. They're very responsible in that they don't bust a hole in the budget and they will change the perception of New Jersey's business climate overnight. Well, my father had a men's clothing store in three different towns at different times. So uh, I'm very interested and very sympathetic. I have a big heart for the individual businessman because I know what it means. Uh, it means unceasing worry and work. Um, and George, if I may, I will tell you that I've been fortunate. I mean, I've worked very hard. Uh, I'm an MBA CPA that ended up in the publishing industry. I started, owned, operated, and eventually sold two very successful New Jersey medical publishing businesses that employed New Jerseyans. 
and I paid my capital gains to the federal government when I sold those businesses, I need to tell you, the check that I had to write on the gain on the sale of those businesses to the state of New Jersey was painful. We're taxed at ordinary tax rates on that gain, and the state of New Jersey never did anything for me in terms of tax credits or any other type of programs. I did it all on my own. And paying that check to the state of New Jersey was downright painful. Um, I don't think it's fair. I don't think we should do it. Uh, you mentioned property taxes. I'm not clear on how you can reduce property taxes uh, without harming services. Uh, well, listen, George, what a lot of people don't know is their property tax bill is broken up into three parts. There's the municipal tax portion, which is 10 to 15% of the total. There's the county tax portion, which is 10 to 15% of the total. And then there's the school tax portion, which can be anywhere from 60 to 80% of the total. And the reason why your tax is so high is because of that school tax portion that mayors get all the blame for. And the reason the school tax portion is so high is because of the way the state distributes more than $10 billion in state aid to our 600 school districts. Every single penny of income tax in this state is dedicated to school aid. And I'm telling you, we need a much more fairer and equitable, flatter distribution of that $10 billion. Uh, more than 70% of that $10 billion goes to less than 10% of our school districts. It's not I, fair. Let me ask you something, though. How are you going to get around the Supreme Court ruling that made that possible? Uh, I've uh, thought that we should, you know, appeal again. George, a couple of ways. Uh, there are arguments that the Supreme Court has not heard. For example, why does a $300,000 house in my hometown of Hillsborough, the typical New Jersey suburb, pay twice as much in property taxes as the exact same $300,000 house with an owner with the exact same socioeconomic profile in Hoboken, Jersey City, or North? That's not fair. It's because of the way that we distribute school aid. Even the affluent in places like Hoboken, benefit greatly from the way that we distribute school aid. The Supreme Wait, Court, could you maybe explain that people are not aware of this, what the Supreme Court decision regarding school aid in poor districts is about? Otherwise, they might not know. Uh, the Supreme Court has based education finance in this state for the past 40 years on three words in our state constitution, thorough and efficient. The translation of that is every child deserves a high quality education. Who would disagree? Here's the problem. When we look at those areas that might be blighted, um, whether it's Jersey City, Newark, Hoboken, uh, Camden, uh, Patterson, Elizabeth, um, these cities have blight. They have depressed economies and may not have a viable tax base properties to tax in order to generate enough property taxes to pay for schools. So I agree, we should help out those districts, but not to the extent that we are, not for 40 years. What the Supreme Court doesn't know is you've got situations in places like Hoboken where millionaires get to send their kids to pre-K for free. That was never the intention of the Abbott decisions. It's been abused. It's been abused in places like Jersey City where they hand out pilots, payment in lieu of taxes, and keep those properties off the tax rolls which depresses their assessed value, which qualifies them for more state aid. Well, you, These are the arguments the Supreme Court has. That a little slower for people who are not up on uh, that sort of thing. Um, and the, yes, you're absolutely right. The Abbott decision changed things, unfortunately, it looks like forever. 
uh, in this state. And basically what the Abbott decision did was it said that you must supply enough money per student in the poorest districts as to spend on students in the richest district. That's correct, George. And, and here, here's the, the fly in the ointment on that one. Here in Hillsborough, we spend $16,000 per student and produce a high quality education. In places like Jersey City and Newark, which are getting subsidized unbelievably by the state, the cost per student could be 25,000, 30,000, 35,000. How is it that a child in Jersey City needs ten dollars or $15,000 more? It is no accident that those cities with the greatest state subsidy have the highest cost per pupil. These are the arguments the Supreme Court hasn't heard. But let me say two things about the Supreme Court. If I don't get the cooperation of the Supreme Court on what I think is a very compelling, compelling and fair argument, I will call for a constitutional convention. Let's not have three words like thorough and efficient define education finance. Let us rewrite our constitution. The current constitution is 70 years old. It has served us well, but it has failed us with modern day problems like school finance and affordable housing. And here's another thing, George, if I have the privilege of serving the people of New Jersey for eight years, guess what I get to do? I get to nominate four Supreme Court justices. That's a new majority. Four? Four. There'll be four over the course of those eight years. Wow. That makes a big difference. It sure does. Um, uh, are you going to talk when you campaign about the Abbott decision? I'm not sure that people, the average person, is that aware of what what is causing the situation now regarding the schools. Also, I don't see the articles that I used to see that would tell you how much money is being spent in Asbury Park. Uh, which is 28000 which means you can go to Rutgers for that. You can go to Rutgers for that. And, and certainly I'm going to make it a point that this is a, a central plank in my gubernatorial campaign. It's something I always talk about on the stump. And so the answer to your question with regard to Abbott is yes, but in very, very general terms. Um, we don't want to get people lost in the weeds of what is a very, very complex public policy uh, and, um, and, and, and statute. Uh, but at the same time, here's what people do understand. People in the suburbs are paying twice for schools. Their income taxes are paying for schools in places like Jersey City and Hoboken, which have experienced enormous revitalization and should be able to stand on their own two feet. And then they pay for their own schools through their property taxes. This policy actually makes the middle class poorer because they're paying for schools twice. That's not fair. And when they hear that a $300,000 house in Jersey City or Hoboken pays half as much as they do in property taxes, they don't like that either because it's not fair. When millionaires in Hoboken get to send their kids to pre-K for free, they don't like that either because it's not fair. Those are messages that resonate and point out how very arbitrary, nefarious, unfair, and I believe unconstitutional the current school funding formula is. I have to agree with a lot of what you said. Uh, why do you think that these arguments did not resonate in the primary election in the Republican Party when you were trying to become governor. Well, I'll tell you why, George, and this is the most valuable le lesson I learned from three years ago in the primary. I declared seven months ahead of time. And if there's one thing I learned is seven months is not enough time to get up and down this very large, small state of ours and get the message out. My competition, Kim Gudano, had a seven-year head start as lieutenant governor. At the end of the day, she didn't get more than, she was denied 50% of the vote. I got more than one out of three votes. We ran a very close second, uh, but this time around, 
with the extra runway, runway I provided myself, we're in it to win it, and we will. Have you ever tried out these arguments in front of an urban audience? Uh, oh, you bet I have. And um, I want to make it clear that this is not about penalizing. It's not about penalizing the urban centers. It's about getting them to understand that there's a better way to make New Jersey fair across the board. When people hear in places like Jersey City and Hoboken that everyone else around the state has to pay for their pre-K um, or that their property taxes are half as much. So if someone's paying $800,000 on a $8,000 on a $300,000 house in Hillsborough, but that same house is $4,000 in Jersey City, isn't it fair if both houses pay 6,000? Uh, uh, I think you have a very compelling argument. And we'll see what will happen out there. Have you already started going around talking to people? I mean, uh, I know you've talked to insiders, but I mean, the, the average guy mowing his yard out there. You bet I have, George. And I declared, Jen, I mean, listen, I was on the campaign trail unofficially for two plus years. Uh, from the time that Murphy got sworn in, I said I was going to run for governor again. Uh, up and down the state I was for two plus years. Made things officially official this past January. And the response around the state has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, and we're doing very, very good with putting together a ground game, a grassroots organization that can help other candidates as well as my, my candidacy. Uh, we're doing our fundraising. And uh, certainly the pandemic has changed the dynamic. A lot more phone calls, a lot more Zoom calls uh, now. Uh, but uh, as things open up, we are gathering again um, while observing social distancing. Okay. I want to switch topics. Uh, to one of my favorite hobby horses, and that's higher education. I was a professor for about 37 years, and that's what I'm, I'm very interested in that, in addition to taxes here. Uh, New Jersey, I'm going to concentrate mainly on Rutgers University. Uh, Rutgers University, I think, has been an underachiever for too many years. My whole family went there. We all owe our careers to Rutgers University. So I'm in love with the place, but I do have some questions that have come about. First is that we have people like Professor Puar, uh, who teaches at Rutgers, New Brunswick, and she goes around the country with a foul anti-Semitic lie. And um, it's she says that uh, the Jews in the Middle East are stealing body parts from the Palestinians. This is a rather disgusting uh, idea, and it has a bloody history. In fact, it's called a blood libel. It, I mean, this has resulted in a lot of dead Jews. And, and not only that, she was actually given extra money to go around the country and talk. Uh, but my, when I bring this up with most people, they say, well, you know, she has freedom of speech. But from my point of view, we both know and everyone knows that no one has said anything, anything like that about black people, trans people, homosexuals, bisexuals, any other group would be allowed. They would never be hired. They would never be rehired. They'd never be given extra money. to. And this is a really rotten lie. And perhaps the scariest thing about this is that when the word got out about this sort of thing, in four days, a thousand professors throughout the country uh, signed a petition backing her up. And the union at Rutgers backs her up. And uh, this is a little bit scary if you're uh, Jewish and if you come from a Holocaust family. Uh, 
And um, is, would you be willing to enter the fray, and I don't envy you, uh, and do something about it. For example, in New Jersey, we have a line item veto. Would you be willing to like just eliminate the entire department? Uh, because I mean, this is this is like a Ku Klux Klan rally. This department. It's cool. Well, listen, I, I, we all know people have a right to free speech, and then there's also the the issue of tenure uh, in dealing with uh, faculty. Uh, but at the same time, we we want our faculty to be representative of our values here in New Jersey. Uh, listen, I believe in academic freedom, uh, but we don't want anybody speaking out in a way that I think, particularly if they're lying, that tarnishes our, our, our state universities and colleges or our state. I, I never really given thought to the line item veto um, as an opportunity to send a message. But I will tell you this, at the very, very least, I will use the bully pulpit as governor to bring light uh, to uh, what some people are saying that I just consider to be very, very inappropriate. Uh, there's another faculty member at Rutgers whose name escapes me right now, who's really done a number of, of, of anti-Trump tweets that uh, include the worst kind of expletives. And um, going as far as to say that um, she hates anyone who, who supports Trump. Um, that is not representative, I, I think, of someone that serves as a mentor uh, to young adults who are in the midst of their college studies. So I will speak out on anything that I believe is not representative of New Jersey's values, not representative of our 9 million citizens. And certainly I think tarnishes uh, the brand of our state colleges and universities. That would be most welcome. Uh, um, the last president of Rutgers uh, looked at the, over the situation and decided that this woman was a world-class scholar. That's a quote from what she said. And uh, I would like to eliminate these departments because they have sort of taken over our universities. And, um, but anything you can do, even yelling loudly, um, you know, I'm Jewish, you're Italian, we appreciate that. Uh, anyway, um, okay, let me ask you a few more questions. Uh, Rutgers has uh, been an underachiever in other ways as well. For example, in Florida, they have a program whereby if you want to go to a four-year school, but you want to come out with a trade, you can go there and your major is contracting. So you get a four-year education and the prestige that goes with that. And you actually know how to do something. You're going to get a job. We have not done that. We could do it. You can also do it with uh, electrical workers as well. If you want to become an electrical worker, an electrician, I guess we would say, um, you can do the same thing. And uh, I've had innumerable students over the years that would come to me and said, you know, I really don't want to be here. But my father said that first I can do this and then I can do any, anything I want. And, uh, you know, I've talked to these people. I remember one was this history major. I said, well, you must learn something in history. He said, yeah, I know how to make mead. Um, other kid wanted to open a, a brick oven a pizzeria. Um, this way we could satisfy both groups there. There's something else that's going on generally across the country, and I would like to see Rutgers stand tall on this one. Basically, the younger professors and the people who basically dominate policy are very hostile to Western civilization and the United States. Um, and what they have done is they've stripped out a lot of this education about Western civilization. In the olden days, 
were old and people like me went to school, part of the reason for going to college was to learn about Western civilization and pass it on. After all, this is the civilization that honors human liberty above other values. We're the people that, you know, uh, eliminated slavery and, and a number of things that I'm proud of, along with a number of things that I'm not proud of. So, but uh, they, they also have other things in a lot of English courses that are being taught in New Jersey. They're not teaching you how to read and write at a high level. They're teaching you uh, that to hate the damn patriarchy and things like that. And in an age of science and um, technology, I think a liberal arts kid better be ready. They better have a good education because they're only selling one thing. And they're not selling computers or their knowledge about computers. And um, so I was wondering if we should give some thought to the idea of having an alternative core curriculum. The people who are on the left can do whatever they do over there. But a student should have the, the uh, possibility of taking a course, uh, taking a set of courses, these are the mandatory courses everyone takes, that uh, emphasize Western civilization, that don't spend too much time yelling at the United States or Israel, for uh, my luck. Um, you know, there's a lot of hostility toward Israel in these courses. And often when they're supposed to be teaching calculus or that or chemistry or whatever, they're spending class time yelling at, at the, you know, um, Israel and the United States. And I'm wondering if you would look at the possibility of having, all right, you do whatever it is. It's, we want a core curriculum that is more in line with us, which I'm sure is the majority of students, including the, the parents of these kids who are, they're already worried sick that they were majoring in history or political science. Anyway, do you think that might be possible? We could talk, we have a new president over there. Uh, uh, George, I, I think it's, uh, it's long overdue. I mean, what's happened over the past 10 years with all the emphasis on science and technology, we've gotten away from a liberal arts curriculum and we've gotten away from uh, things like teaching about Western civilization. Listen, no nation is perfect and no system is perfect. America hasn't been perfect as a nation. Uh, the capitalist system isn't perfect, but you know what? The ideal of America is still the best there ever was and ever will be. And the capitalist system is still the best that ever will be in terms of providing each and every individual who works hard with economic opportunity and a chance for financial security. And we've gotten away from it. I would argue that not only do we need more of it at the college level, we need more of it at the earlier level in K through 12. Ask kids today, as I often do when I'm in their company, who are just graduating from high school, to name you American, uniquely American ideals and watch them struggle. It's embarrassing. It is. Um, we believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We believe in perseverance. We believe in hard work. We believe in being frugal. Um, these are all things that uh, are American ideals, and we've gotten away from it. We've got to get back to it. So as governor, I will tell you that not only will there be um, uh, an emphasis really on how we go about higher education in the state, which whose cost structure I think is out of control, uh, but there'll be a different emphasis in K through 12. That is great. I, I, I would also mention that in, you can go through college now in New Jersey, not take one course on American government and in particular the ideals and uh, contained in there and the constitution. I mean, what is a college 
education mean if you have been going through college, don't know more about your own constitution than anyone who's just spent four years in a bar? Yep. But, but George, I will also tell you that it, it concerns me greatly if um, we wait till college to start teaching about the, the, the benefits of a liberal arts uh, and Western civilization. That worries me. I'm not saying we shouldn't. We should. Um, but at the same time, if, if we wait, it's a little dangerous to wait that long. We, uh, there was a group in New Jersey that was trying to get what they called civics education K through 12. And uh, I think it kind of petered out because they didn't get support uh, with you. Apparently, they will get support. Oh, it'll definitely get support. And listen, I, I think we're doing a disservice, too. You'll see a greater emphasis on vocational training in high school. Um, as a father of four, my, my wife and I have raised four children. Uh, three went to college. One went through the trades. Um, but I will tell you, having gone through the experience with the one that went into the trades, uh, we don't do a good enough job in high school of identifying those students that probably will not go to college and preparing them for careers. We don't do a good job. We, we spend too much time in our, our, our public high schools in particular, and I would say our private high schools as well, focusing on how many of our students are going to colleges and what colleges are they getting accepted to. We consider that to be the grade as to the quality of education. The quality of education should be, should be graded by how well prepared are all of our students for their post high school endeavors. Yes. Uh, I think you're absolutely right on that. I was reading how Siemens Corporation, a giant uh, German company that makes big things and, uh, and electronic things and turbines and, and, and everything. It's one of the giants on the earth. They're the GE of today. What GE yeah. was 40 years ago is Siemens today. Right, before GE went into credit only. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they came over here and they were astonished to find that they couldn't find technicians. They started on their own three different types of um, uh, apprenticeship programs. Uh, and so you're going to school, you're earning some money, not everything you'll earn later, but you earn about what a third of what you'll earn when you get out. And you're going to school, you're spending your time in high school, let's say, or in community college. And you're also spending your time learning a trade. And of course, when you get out, you have a job because that's the reason they're plowing money and, and effort into you. This would be a beautiful thing. And right now it's sort of done. It's not sort of done. It's all over the damn place. It's all over the damn place. We need a much more synergistic and symbiotic relationship between industry and higher ed. And I will tell you in the trades, we need a much more synergistic and symbiotic relationship between industry and our high schools. Absolutely. I'm a 110% for that sort of thing. Plus, I think this is a vote getter as well. It is. I mean, it's hard to be against that nowadays. And listen, and I think as a parent that has gone through it, I find it very refreshing when I'm out amongst people talking about the fact that we need to be paying less attention to the kid who's getting 2400 on his SATs because that kid's on his way and paying more attention to the kid that isn't going to college. That's the one that we need to prepare, because if we don't, more than likely, that's the person that ends up being the long term unemployed. Yes. And I think those people are the people that we have um, just ignored for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And finally, they said, all right, that's enough of that. Let's try someone new. Uh, I think that's the cause of a great deal of alienation. People who don't think we care about them because we haven't cared about them. 
And what worries me about it, George, now with the minimum wage being at $15 an hour, which I oppose, um, and minimum wage jobs were always entry level positions for you to learn maybe a skill and work your way up the ladder. You'll get college graduate, you'll get high school graduates rather now who aren't going to college that'll start out working in a fast food joint for $15 an hour, which is $30,000 a year and think they're sitting on top of the world. And you and I both know what will happen five to 10 years ago by, and they'll be looking at themselves saying, where the hell am I? Yes. I've met these people at like ShopRite and they'll, they'll say, you know, I've got this neat truck and it's only 350 a month. I'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute. But uh, yes, we need to sort of re-educate ourselves and re-educate the people out there. And I hope you'll be doing that. Listen, I, I've taken a solid half hour out of your life here. I've enjoyed it much. I hope it's been worth it. And uh, say hello to Maggie for me. I appreciated her help a great deal. Well, I appreciate it, George. I will certainly do so. Thank you for uh, allowing me to come on the show with you. Sometime. Okay. Very good. All right. And if you might, if you want to tell people how to look at this, um, you can just tell them it's Citizens Going Wild on YouTube. Very good. Right. We'll make sure to do that. We'll post it and advertise it, promote it on our social media platforms. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. George, thank you. Okay.